from this point forward, whenever I, whenever I say Ralph, you guys will know, you know, just between us that I'm really talking about me. Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to listen to is an experiment in sound. When Ralph was about 10 years old, he, uh, like a lot of kids, uh, sort of on the, on the cusp of teenagerhood, maybe he was 11, he became obsessed with uh, comic books and superheroes and supervillains. He was always more interested in supervillains than superheroes. But in Ralph's case, things went a little farther than normal, I think, maybe, because he stole a, um, a, a dark brown bedsheet from his parents and spent a long time in secret at night trying to cut it and sew it into a kind of cloak, like a cape or a cloak, and um, more or less managed to do that, um, and then found a um, an old sort of leather ski mask of his father's that was really terrifying looking. They used to, they used to make these things that, you know, they, they, it looks like something straight out of a slasher movie, but it was just like a, like a wind, guard for cross-country skiing and uh, he took to wearing the cloak and this leather mask late at night sneaking out of the house and uh, wandering through the neighborhood and just sort of watching watching people in their homes in a really really creepy way When that no longer really kind of satisfied him, he started making these little notes that said, the eye in the pyramid is watching you. (laughs) With a little drawing like from the dollar bill of pyramid with an eyeball. And Ralph would find, you know, houses with a, you know, in which people were, you know, places, houses of people where someone was at home. And Ralph would, would wait until the people had left the room. And then he would sneak up to the house. And with two little pieces of scotch tape, he would tape this little note facing in on the outside of the picture window in the living room or something like that. And Ralph did this for, for really months. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Madcap. This is David Ross. And I'm Daniel Bloom. Our guest for today is a man, an author, who delves into a topic so grand that even he admits the deeper he looks into it, the more and more complex it gets. It's the water in which we're all swimming. It's time. Our guest, John Ray, is the author of The Lost Time Accidents, a novel, releasing in early February. This interview is brought to you in part by the Penn Faulkner Foundation, who will be having an event with John Ray called Not Waving But Drowning, an evening with Celeste Ang and John Ray, moderated by Katie Waldman. It's Tuesday, February 23rd at 7.30 p.m. at the Folger Shakespeare Library, the Elizabeth Theater. The Elizabethan Theater. Oh, my bad. Not to be confused with the Victorian Theater or any other theaters. Nope, don't make that mistake. All right, the address is 201 East Capitol Street, Southeast, Washington, D.C. You can find more information at penfaulkner.org or at our website, madcapdc.org. Now let's get right into it with the half-Austrian, half-American John Ray. If I could save time in a bottle The first thing that I'd like to do 
Uh, before we even begin to talk about the content of the book, can you walk us through the moment it was just an idea? Yeah, actually, the first thing that came to me was the, the sort of the strange title of the book. And I remember exactly when that was. I, For a while, a long time ago, when I was impecunious and struggling and hadn't even published a book yet, I uh, found myself living in the basement of a, a warehouse under the Brooklyn Bridge in, uh, in Dumbo. It was a windowless basement room and it was, it was actually used as a rehearsal space for a bunch of rock bands and I just lived in a little tent in the, in the back of this rehearsal space, believe it or not, because uh, I didn't have a job and um, was trying to, trying to get my first novel done. What kind of tent? It was a dome tent. It was a, a very nice Sierra Designs dome tent. That's fancy. That, Shout that's, out that's fancy. <laughs> I mean, when it's your entire home, you can, uh, you know, you want the best. <laughs> when it's the only thing between you and a bunch of rats, basically, uh, you really do. You really want the best. Nothing but the best will do. I used to wander around late at night used to wander around this neighborhood, which has since become very fancy, but at the time was just a, a wasteland, just a no-man's land. And uh, late at night, I turned a corner, and it's actually a scene that's described about two-thirds of the way through the novel. I turned the corner and found myself in front of this enormous power-generating station, which is right on, the, right on the East River there in the neighborhood that's now called Dumbo. Right above the gate to this enormous power station, was a sign that get, you know said welcome to the station, et cetera, et cetera. Three hundred and twenty-five hours, I think it was, without a lost time accident. And I had no idea what that meant. It was very a very strange thing to come across in the middle of the night. <laughs> and uh, that phrase, that sort of odd assembly of words, just really, really sort of stuck in my head and festered there for a number of years as, as I wrote my first few books. I always thought, God, that would be a great title for something, but what the hell would it be a title of? Seven years later, I have, I have an answer. Would you be willing to read a passage from that section? Okay, so in the section that I'm going to read, our, our hero is um, a, uh, a struggling science fiction writer who is trying to sort of recover his inspiration after a series of, of, of big setbacks in his life. Um, and he, he lives in New York City, and he finds himself just wandering aimlessly around the city, again, late at night, sort of the way that, that I used to do. And in the course of his wanderings, he's been told that uh, there might be work for him at a power generating station in the neighborhood of Vinegar Hill, which is sort of what's now called Dumbo in Brooklyn. The phrase, the lost time accidents, has a, a real importance for him and, and for his family because it's connected to a scientific discovery that his grandfather made that no one can figure out. So I think that's all you really need to know. His name is Orson. Okay. The only other thing I should say is that uh, there are a series of protagonists in the novel as, as, as we go from one generation to the next. But the whole book is narrated by a character named Baldi, and Orson, the struggling science fiction author, is uh, his own father. 
My father set out without much hope or ambition, straightening a borrowed paisley tie. He didn't expect to get a job for various reasons. And by the time he knew better, as is often the case with blows to the head by the hammer of fate, there was nothing left to do but cry to heaven. Jesus age Christ, Orson heard himself shout. He just rounded the corner of Plymouth Street and Gold, a quaint little cluster of houses, worlds removed from the warehouses and garment factories behind them, and it caught his first glimpse of the power-generating station. It was colossal, fortress-like, far more forbidding than he'd imagined, but he barely took in such mundane details. What knocked him sideways was the flickering sign gaudy as a Times Square marquee that hung suspended from its massive gate. Welcome to the Hudson Gold Power Generating Station. 0062 hours without a lost time accident. The world went unnaturally quiet. He heard nothing but the humming of high-tension wires and the rush of blood to his bewildered brain. A man in his thirties, in security graves, took his measure from the window of a hut. Sign needs changing, the man said. We're way past 62. That's just that little moment that oh. I wanted to sort of... I just, you know, it, not even sure that it serves the narrative of the novel necessarily to have this kind of little moment, but I wanted to, to kind of embed the beginning of my own process of writing the novel in the novel itself somehow yeah. that was wonderful by the way you you transported us we're with you right now in, okay. that, in the power station <laughs> uh, have, have you always been a storyteller i think when i was a little kid i was i really i really put all thoughts of writing and storytelling aside in my teenage years maybe because i thought it wasn't cool or wouldn't get me dates or something i don't know exactly i tried to Tried to not be a geek for a while in my teens, and I failed at not being one. <laughs> so uh, it caught up with me eventually again when I was sort of getting out of college, I guess. Let's all right. So let's 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 discuss uh, grammar and syntax. Like, what uh, what are things when you write that you will never use? Because some people are very particular when they write. Like, what are what are words and phrases that you just would never use, or punctuation marks or anything like that? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's, there are a few things. I mean, actually, punctuation, these, those kind of formal uh, stylistic questions, that really varies for me from book to book. I'm not necessarily someone who has a, a particular consistent style or, or voice at all. It kind of arises out of the project and out of the, the sort of tone of the book, you know, some books that I've worked on are, are very serious and some are more playful, like uh, like the current one, The Lost Time Accidents, is a comic novel to some degree. And I find that with the more humorous writing that I do, for some reason, when I'm writing in a comedic vein, I use semicolons, colons, commas, everything to a far greater extent than I do when I'm writing maybe slightly grimmer or darker 
fiction, and uh, that that tends to be more streamlined and less punctuated in general. I even find myself avoiding commas to some degree. It's odd, but in terms of in terms of real peeves that I have, things that I would never do, there's there are there are so many things that I, <laughs> that I find uh, all over the place, particularly now in the age of you know, internet journalism and personal essays and so on. There, there are so many things that are, um, that are really obnoxious to me, uh, which just shows what a curmudgeon I am. Um, shit, let me think about this. <laughs> uh, something that really drives me crazy. Pick something from the Sean Penn El Chapo interview if you can. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, that was that was Shakespearean genius. I, I absolutely couldn't um, take any issue with that. I mean, I really think that Sean Penn did an excellent job of presenting the real El Chapo to the world in that piece. A, a truly tragically misunderstood man who really just is a Robin Hood uh, trying to do his best for um, for the working man throughout Mexico, obviously. <laughs> Well, maybe we could just talk about the Sean Penn El Chapo interview for the rest of this podcast. Feel free. We'd love to hear your additional, additional thoughts. It's high time someone spoke truth to power about Sean Penn. <laughs> please, please go no, on. Not really, not really. He's just, you know. Sean Penn is, is uh, he's, he's too entertaining to want to, you know, take him down to pay. He is, he is. Uh, he's I, really the El Chapo of, uh, of respected film actors. As as you're thinking of pet peeves, do you use italics in emails? No, I don't use it. I mean, we could, you know, we could talk about my profound hatred of emojis. I really, um, I really hate emojis. Mm. Flame emoji to emojis, the concept. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, with, with some exceptions, you know, um, people, some people get very creative with, for some reason, I, I'm, I'm completely fine with people using various punctuation signs to draw little pictures in their emails as long as they don't represent the human face. <laughs> and there are some people, I, I have a friend who's very good uh, with, um, you know, he can make an excellent penis, for example. You know, but, uh, but when these, these winking, smiling, you know, melancholy emoji faces that people send at you it, 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 they're always used as a kind of proxy for something actually funny for example that mm. they say if they've invested a little bit more effort in the interaction you know and it unfortunately i feel as though emojis have really the reason i hate them is that they they become a substitute for actually communicating what you mean in a way that has any real substance you know it's so much easier to make like a winking emoji rather than a you know an actual joke. It's just reduced the number of jokes in in email exchanges, and that's a real tragedy. <laughs> so if so, if an emoji somebody sends with something with an emoji, do you just not respond? Do you delete the conversation? I've been, I have done that occasionally, but you know, I, I do like to I try to maintain my my friendships, and I do have some friends who who are guilty of that. Uh, so usually I'll I'll, I'll Sometimes I'll, I'll write back and I'll answer their email. And then at the end, in parentheses, I'll just say, emoji representing dissatisfaction. <laughs> write it, I'll write it out as a word. Uh, if I do that often enough, I, I do find it makes people 
self-conscious about their piece of when they might just end the conversation with me. <laughs> That's perfect. But mission accomplished. So, all right, for, for the book, The Lost Time Accidents, now, the, one thing I noticed, the texture of the book, okay? Like, like do you, the book feels good in your hands. Like the physical, right. actual texture of the book. Now, like, right. do, you, do you select that, or does the publisher <laughs> do that? Because a, a friend of mine was holding you it, know, they were like, they're like, this feels good. Like a lot of authors, I can tend to become a little bit obsessive and a bit of a micromanager about things. Publishers these days are very good at just completely ignoring most of the attempts of the author to to micromanage the, the tiny details. Like in terms of the texture of the book, are you are you referring to the, the paper of the pages or the cover? The outside? The cover? Yeah. I mean, I'm rubbing it now. It's amazing. Yeah. It does have a nice, it does have a nice texture. It's not the texture I asked for. You know, I asked for a baby fur seal. <laughs> Did you really? And um, I said, I wanted to feel like a baby fur seal that's been rescued. <laughs> of course. It wasn't, in fact. Of course. <laughs> and uh, I, I feel as though they kind of missed the mark. Uh, I'm getting more of a deceased baby fur seal feeling from oh. that. <laughs> Frankly, the publisher ignored most of my suggestions, and I think it turned out for the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, two characters, Casper and Waldemar. Um, describe them. Now, uh, for these two brothers, which one would you love to go out and have drinks with, and which one would you prefer to have your back in like a World War II situation? <laughs> wow. That's a really good question. Um... I think I think it, actually I think it breaks down pretty clearly. One of the two brothers is wildly insane, and um, was was of course for that reason very entertaining for me to write. I, I really enjoyed writing writing his rants and monologues and his all of his sort of obsessive speeches that he gives. Who in so, your who in your personal life did you draw from for that? Did you did you did you draw those rants and take them from somebody? Wow. Okay, now I'm really hoping that none of my family members. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, uh, I think I drew more from uh, my own tendency to go on rants when I've had a couple beers okay. uh, and just tried to take that raw material and, 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 and make it really, really creepy and, and see where I ended up. Um, but so for that reason, I think that um, Valdemar, the crazy brother, would be more entertaining to go out on the town with as long as you, uh, you know, had a, a, a limo waiting outside the bar that you could just hop into and drive away when things got really dark. Whereas his, his brother, Casper, who's sort of the more uh, level-headed and maybe slightly less entertaining brother, uh, would definitely be the one that you would want to, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan style smuggle you out of occupied Germany or something. I like that answer. Also, so I guess like uh, for Waldy Tolliver, uh, why are his findings so important? Well, he's been raised uh, in a family that has believed for generations that their own, the great grandfather's incredibly important discovery about the nature of time and how it moves and what the shape that it has was completely eclipsed by, by Einstein's discovery of the theory of relativity. You're talking about a narrator and a protagonist who has never questioned the importance of this lost scientific discovery. And he kind of grows up thinking that 
like his father before him and his father's father before him. His life's mission is to try and, and decipher his great-grandfather's discovery, which is only partially available to him. And it, so it, that's sort of the mystery that is, is at the heart of the novel. Uh, but then as he gets older and, and acquires a bit more perspective on how crazy his family is, he begins to question whether that actually is a, a suitable quest for him in his life and uh, starts to resist that family pressure. And that, that leads to some pretty major conflicts for him. Do you, do you, know, you know who, uh, who aggravated me in, in the book in a, in a good way was Mrs. Haven? Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, what's... What, 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 she's a, a true femme fatale, and uh, as such... Which, what's she hiding? <laughs> <sighs> well... That I and mean, I might have to put a spoiler alert in this in this podcast. I, I I really saw Mrs. Haven both, of course, as as the primary love interest in the book, and I I wrote her as on a certain level um, a kind of romantic ideal from my point of view. I, I had to make sure that I was as fascinated by her as my protagonist was, since she is the person who's addressed throughout the novel. But at the same time, I saw her a bit as a, a film noir, femme fatale, along the lines of the love interest in Double Indemnity, for example, or any of, you know, dozens of noir films uh, from this sort of classic era in Hollywood. And that's just a whole genre of filmmaking that I've always loved. And you have to keep things fun for yourself when you're writing a novel. It takes so many years that uh, you have to create little games for yourself to play and you have to um, find ways of referencing or riffing off of things that give you joy. And um, so I, I, I decided to work a lot of, of that sort of noir kind of feeling and aesthetic into the book, uh, particularly in the, in the second half. So you, uh, you mentioned the Paris Review, and I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to bring it back up because there's a question that we ask every guest that I, I, I stole from the Paris Review. Yeah, it is that... Uh, Unapologetically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, every... All right, so the question is, every great artist secretly performs for an audience of one. So as your career rises, who are you really writing for? Hmm. Who is that a quote from? I can't, I, I, I can't remember who... I, uh, did Plimpton do all the... Who did the interviews? I think I want to say it was like an interview with like Kurt Vonnegut, but I can't remember who, who, uh, yeah. who the interviewer was. Oh, that's okay. You're the first guest who's ever asked for a citation on that question, and I applaud you for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, because most don't even know what the Paris Review is. <laughs> well, the only I, I asked because I've done two interviews. Uh, I've been the interviewer for the Paris Review on two different occasions. Uh, once in 2002 with Haruki Murakami, and once just a few years ago I interviewed Ursula Le Guin. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the only reason I asked, but I wouldn't be surprised if that did come from Kurt Vonnegut because he was quite a, uh, a resource for those kind of pithy statements about the artistic process, which may or may not be completely accurate. I think in my case, it really, again, varies from, from book to book. My first novel was really written with... Uh, my very first girlfriend in mind, in fact, uh, someone that I was involved with for a long time and then had completely lost touch with when I began writing the novel and uh, didn't even necessarily expect to see or communicate with again. But I found it to be a way of motivating myself to write that first book. My second novel was, was written out of a kind of 
anger with the state of American politics during the the, uh, the George W. Bush era. So I, you know, I don't know who the the audience of one that would have been for that book, maybe Dick Cheney. <laughs> you know, it was sort of, I intended it to be a kind of flaming turd on Dick Cheney's doorstep. Poop again! He called the shit poop! But I doubt that... Uh, what about a note? You could have just posted a note in his window. <laughs> <laughs> I should have, yeah. The eye in the pyramid is watching me. <laughs> just think about how that would have changed the whole direction of world events. <laughs> Absolutely. He felt there was some actual oversight going on. I think my last book, Low Boy, was, I think it was kind of written for my mom, as a matter of fact. The, the mother in that, in that novel is, is really one of the central figures. I guess, so in that way, it, it really varies from book to book. And this one? This one... This one's for Ralph. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's a, that's a good, that's a very good. I mean, it's a it's an interesting question. To me, this book was so much. It was really the first novel that I've written in which I really thought a lot about my about my family, my family on both sides, my mother's family and my father's family, and it began as an attempt to write a kind of funhouse mirror, distorted family portrait of, of my own family. So I guess I guess I guess you could say that this one is for my dad. Dan actually found the uh refound refound the uh, the question. I'm gonna like it, it was by oh, wow. it was by Vonnegut. I'm gonna I'm I'm read this paragraph. I said in Slapstick that she was the person I wrote for, that every successful creative person creates for it with an audience of one in mind. That's the secret of artistic unity. Anybody can achieve it if he or she will make something with only one person in mind. I didn't realize that she was the person I wrote for until after she died. So, He's talking about his mother, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. There is a, a tremendous unity running through all of the books of Vonnegut. And it's interesting to think that he thought of it that way. I'm not, I'm not sure if I agree with him that, that that's the way to... Huh. But that's the way to, to, to write an effective novel. I mean, you, of course, you run the risk in that case of worrying less about whether the story you're writing will be accessible to, to other people. You, know? you, you might fall into the kind of dangerous practice of, of writing a novel as a kind of extended in-joke between yourself and one other person. <laughs> I, you know, I, try to, I try to write novels for lots of people at the same time. I always thought that was kind of the idea. John, you've been so generous with your time. We don't want to keep you for longer than we have you. Um, okay. But I didn't want to let you go without asking you about Austria. It's All right. a, a setting in this book. It's a part of your family background. I wanted to know if you have a relationship with Austria, and if so, when the last time you went was, if ever. Oh, I, I have a really close relationship to Austria. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, uh, as I said before, I think, but... I have two passports. My mother is an Austrian citizen, and, and um, I, I grew up knowing that there was this other country that played a huge role in, in my mother's life, certainly. And uh, we went back a number of times when I was a kid. For a long time, you know, when I was a teenager, I, it, it was less of a, of, of, a, of a kind of real or important place to me because I was just trying to figure so many other things out. But more and more as the years go by, 
it's become a place that I that I try to go as often as possible. Um, at least once a year, I've become very close with some of my family over there, and my German's gotten better. So the last time I was there was actually just this past October. It's actually a good place to get work done. There's uh, the, the tiny little town that my mom grew up in is... Uh, it's sort of in the foothills of the Alps near the Italian border. A family member that I've become close to still has a little house there. And, and I, I go there often to, um, to try and get work done because it's just, you know, a world removed from, from my day-to-day life. And uh, it's a beautiful place. Everybody should go to Austria. That's my little plug. Good food, good beer. Does music play a role when you write? That's another, that's another hard question to answer because music is very important in my life. Very important. I'm a, a really... I, I used to play a lot of music. I still do. You know, I have a guitar in my workspace and I, you know, occasionally play a song, uh, you know, when nothing else is working. But I can't really work very effectively if I'm listening to music that's too interesting to me. So I can listen to music that does not interest me. For example, when I was working on, I think, my second novel, I started listening to uh, to jazz for that reason. I had no interest in jazz at all, and uh, so it was a kind of it was a way of listening to music, but not being distracted by the music. But the problem was that the more I listened to jazz, which at first had seemed like a foreign language to me, the more interested I became in jazz, and you know, eventually I became really passionate about jazz. But uh, and so then, of course, I couldn't listen to it anymore when I wanted to work. Over the last few years, I've been listening to a lot of a genre of metal known as uh, doom metal or drone metal, uh, which is really, it's kind of beautiful in its way. You know, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a lot of really heavy, distorted guitars just kind of droning on. And much of it doesn't even really have vocals, at least none that you can make out. So it's kind of beautiful, but also really boring. And it's been very helpful, particularly when I'm working in public. I'll just put in my headphones and uh, tune everything else out. Can you, can you give us a song name? David well, wants to punish the audience with some of this stuff. <laughs> no, I actually kind of recommend it. I, I, now I feel bad for calling it boring. But um, there was this very sort of strangely avant-garde uh, metal band, doom metal band called Sun, just to show how, how artsy they are. They're... It's spelled in a completely different way from the way it's pronounced. Um, they're named after this obscure type of amplifier, and it's spelled S-U-N-N, and then an O or a zero, and then a bunch of uh, sort of parentheses so that, that that O or zero seems to be kind of radiating something, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. It's almost like an emoji, actually. Mm. They kind of have a cult following, I think, and they had a... Uh, there's one song of theirs called Black Wedding uh, that uh, I'd listen to on repeat sometimes. It's really just a, just a bunch of like really low-end, droning, heavy metal, you know, I think like drop detuning. It's just the, you know, the heaviest kind of guitar sound you can ever imagine. And that's all it is for about 18 minutes. I, I grew up in heavy metal country, really. It always kind of scared me as a kid. Uh, now that I'm more or less grown up, I just, I just find it really amusing. I guess. <laughs> uh, that, you know, I don't want to say that I don't. There aren't things about it that I appreciate, but uh, it's pretty amusing. So I have, I have two, I have two more questions for you. Sure. Uh, next question is: Do you have a uh, a ritual for when you complete a book? Like, what, what's do you? How, how do you celebrate? Um. 
Well, usually I take a hot shower and uh, smoke a joint. Okay, okay, all right. That's 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 that's, a, that's an excellent answer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's I, I'm not the biggest stoner, so it's kind of a a rare treat. And uh, when I do, it's it's usually to reward myself for something or other. And after that, I might order a pizza. <laughs> get, a little, get a little crazy. Get, really, so you really go for it. If we were to grab one of your high school teachers and be like John Ray as a very well-known and respected author, would they be like, no fucking way? Or would they be like, yeah, I can see that? <laughs> well, I dropped out of my first high school. So it really depends on which high school you go to. Uh, if you went to high school number one, <laughs> they might say no fucking way. Uh, high school number two... To be honest with you, I was such a ghost in high school. I, I really think most teachers would say, who? <laughs> <laughs> huh, you know, I was one of the only kids in my graduating class to not be present anywhere in the yearbook or on the, uh, <laughs> you know, senior, the senior poll or whatever that's called. I just wasn't there. I mean, if you, you, know, you can find the little official photograph of me in the yearbooks, but other than that, it's really as though... You know, I mean, it's in, in that in some way it's an accurate representation of high school for me because I basically had no life. But I think most teachers would be pretty pretty surprised. Yeah, maybe one or two would say okay. One or two might think you weren't just bullshitting them. Okay, and uh, and can, can you can you give us a song uh, in all your heart to close this interview with? Give you a song? Yeah, so a, a song that is personal to you that, that sums up this whole amazing experience. You don't have to sing it, but yeah. if you want to, oh. you can. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I wasn't asking for a performance. My bad. <laughs> I mean, uh, thank if you. If you're, if you're willing. You really had me scared there for a second. Yeah, no, no. Um, a song that sums up my experience of writing this particular book? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, give me a second. It would probably be that song Black Wedding that I was just talking about, which is 18 minutes of just droning distorted guitars. <laughs> okay. John, um, this, is, this has been an excellent conversation, excellent interview. We really enjoyed uh, talking to you. Um, thank you. Uh, and congratulations on the novel. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for, uh, for having me on. It was a good time. Oh, it was our great pleasure. That was John Ray, author of The Lost Time Accidents, a novel. It's published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Special thanks also to the Penn Faulkner Foundation and Lily Meyer for helping to organize this interview. And we're looking forward to seeing everyone at Not Waving But Drowning, an evening with Celeste Eng and John Ray, moderated by Katie Waldman, Tuesday, February 23rd, 2016, at 7.30 p.m. at the Folger Shakespeare Library here in Washington, D.C. David, I'll see you at the Folger. MadcapDC.org, on Facebook and Twitter, at MadcapDC.